0: Amen. Good to see you today. Before we get into the study in 2 Samuel, we have the privilege of dedicating um, two precious little kids to the Lord, Denver and Brooklyn West. And so, if their parents will bring them out, then we can dedicate them to the Lord. There they are. And this is Brooklyn. She's a really special girl. So we're—I—I I, I could Would you want me to lift you up, or do you want to stand on I your understand. own? I figured. <laughs> Come out here so people can see you a little bit, and let's dedicate Brooklyn to the Lord. God, we thank you for this little girl who we've watched her grow up, and she's so kind and smart and fun. And Lord, she's been a complete blessing to her family and and to all of us and so Lord we just want to acknowledge that she belongs to you and she already knows that she knows you love her she knows that Jesus died for her and I'm just so thankful that we can testify before everyone that this precious little girl with her whole future ahead of her belongs to you so I thank you for the blessing that Brooklyn is and all the things that you're going to do, Lord, we believe that you, you will use her life in a, in a really amazing way. You have plans for her that we couldn't even dream of. And so, Lord, just please work in her life and help her to always know that you love her. And that her family loves her. And that she's a person who is close to you and that you have great, great plans for her life. So I thank you for her in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, what do you think Denver will do? Is he gonna be cool? We'll see. Hey, buddy. Yeah. Okay. Turn around and look at the cameras. There you go. I had a little less success with him this morning, but what a what a solid little chunk. <laughs> Let's bring Denver to the Lord. God, thank you for this gift to the West family. This little boy, he's such a blessing. and He's so full of life, and I love seeing backstage as Brooklyn's such a good babysitter for this guy that he's always going to grow up knowing his big sister has his back, knowing that his parents love him and his grandparents and aunts and uncles and cousins and everyone else. But, Lord, also help him to realize that you have a particular purpose in his life. We dedicate him to you now. We acknowledge that he is yours. We acknowledge that we want you to do everything that you can do through this precious little guy. So he's yours. We receive him as a gift, and we offer him back to you as as your child. And Lord, I thank you that Eric and Ashlyn have the privilege of raising these kids and building the life that they built already and they continue to build for the way that you want to continue to bless them as a family Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs> he is looking at me like, I felt him staring at me, and he's like, are you done? <laughs> I'm done, Denver. There <laughs> you go, buddy. You did great, sweetie. Hey. <laughs> i proud of you. i oh, your work your God bless you guys. What a blessing, always. Well, we are in 2 Samuel, so if you have a Bible, you can turn over to 2 Samuel chapter 2. We started our study through 2 Samuel last week. We had, months before, had gone through 1 Samuel as we saw the development of the nation of Israel, Saul becoming king. Then the rise of David with so much potential, God anointing him ultimately to be the next king, which proved to be a threat to Saul. Saul would have rather had his own kids become king. So as a result, Saul was jealous of David, and he ended up driving him out into the wilderness. Saul kept trying to kill David, and David's like, what's an anointed guy supposed to do? I'm not even allowed into my own country. I, you know, his best friend was Saul's son, Jonathan. His wife was well, Saul's daughter, Michael, or Michelle, whatever you want to call her. And so it's like, what a mess this is. David had opportunities to kill Saul, and everyone would think, your life will be better when Saul's dead. But as we saw last week in chapter one, when Saul died, Jonathan died as well, and David mourned both of them. He This isn't the way that he wanted to get a promotion. This isn't the way that he wanted this to go at all. He had such a love and respect for the anointing of God, that as we saw in the last chapter, his mourning over Saul and Jonathan was, it was really nothing short of amazing, one of the best examples of mourning that you see in the scriptures. So now we come to chapter two, and it's like, so what happens now? And you would think, well, I mean, here's David, and Saul's dead, now he can finally move into that spot and become the king of Israel. But it wasn't quite that easy, because there had been animosities growing between David and much of the rest of Israel, because remember, David had been fighting with the Philistines until right before the battle that killed Saul, so... People are like, yeah, I'm not going to get over that too easily. But also, increasingly, there were a lot of people down in Judah, the southernmost tribe where he was from, who liked him. But a lot of the other people, they didn't like him so much. Plus, there's still an army. There's still a general named Abner who is like, okay, my boss is gone, but what do I do now? And he knew if I just you know side with David and go he should be king then that how's that going to affect my job security and so as we dive into the second chapter we just see it's a strategic point in the history of Israel but it's also the very beginnings of the civil war between the southern tribe, Judah, and then later on Benjamin joined up with them. But right now it's just Judah against the other 11 brothers, the other 11 tribes, and they begin to war against each other. This goes on for a while. There's a slight break as we go through 2 Samuel during the life of David and then during the life of Saul. All all the tribes kind of get along and work together. And yet, then they end up dividing again. And after Solomon died, and from then on, it's the northern ten tribes, and at this point, the southern two tribes. Israel was in a perpetual civil war that went on, and civil wars are the worst kind by far, as we will talk about. But let's jump in to see what happened. Saul's dead, David's mourned. Now everybody's looking at David like, what do we do now? It happened after this, verse 1 that david inquired of the lord saying shall i go up to any of the cities of judah now when it says he inquired of the lord he probably didn't just pray he had one of the last surviving priests that was loyal to him and he had snuck off with the uh, urim and thummim which was their way of answering questions they would pray to god and then these stones would either they'd you know like flip on a coin or Um, Some people believe they actually changed colors or spoke. But so at any rate, he has a priest and he's like, what should I do now? Shall I go up to Judah? Now, in the Bible, whenever it says up, you should think down. Because when we think down, we think south. Judah is the southernmost um, area of Israel, but they always called it up um, because ultimately the temple would be there. So should I go up? And the Lord said to him, go up. And David said, where shall I go up? And he said, to Hebron. So David went up there, and his two wives also, he was collecting wives over the years, uh, they would come and go. Um, And David brought up the men who were with him, every man with his household, so they dwelt in the cities of Hebron. Let's stop right there for a minute. This is a good way to start your career, ultimately, Yes, God anointed you a long time ago through Samuel and someday you're going to rule over Israel. But right now, one of the most crucial decisions that you will ever make, what do you do now that Saul is dead? Do you head north and try to win over the support? Or do you head south to Judah where you probably already have greater support? Because he had been living down there in the wilderness helping some of these um, smaller villages and so which do you do? And he very wisely asked God. Now we look at this and say it's so important that before you make any decision you seek the Lord. And that's a good thing to, to consider but it's not necessarily what's taught here because then you don't see him saying now what do I do God? Now what do I do? Now what do I do? This was a critical choice so certainly, when, you're, when you have a big choice that, you, that you're going to make, it's the smartest thing in the world to ask God. And I believe that when we ask God for wisdom and leading, we can make a decision, and it isn't necessarily of God, because we're flawed. I, I don't always hear from God as to exactly what he's saying, But I've learned over the years that living my life by asking God for wisdom and then making the decision, that's always a good thing to do. I can never objectively say this is necessarily a great decision because I think God's talking to me. Because I don't have a Urim and Thummim for one thing. So I could flip a coin, but how do I know that's God? But here's the thing. If I think God wants me to do something, I should do it. I should move forward with that awareness and I know that God will reward my faithfulness. I would rather do the wrong thing for the right reason than the right thing for the wrong reason any day. And so in this case, obviously this was a good decision that he made. But it doesn't say that then he kept seeking the Lord constantly. There are some people who are afraid to make a decision without, oh wait, I better seek the Lord, I better ask the Lord. Sometimes God just wants you to make decisions. He doesn't want you to be stuck to asking questions. I, I remember one time when there was some decision that needed to be made and, and when I was at Calvary and I asked Pastor Chuck, I go, well, we have to either do this or this. And he goes, do this. And I go, well, you want time to pray about it? He goes, I don't have to, just do it. <laughs> and you know maybe you can get ahead of yourself when you do that. But in real life, you don't have, you know, it's like you can go, okay, I think God wants me to move here. Okay, which city, which house, what color of house, which moving service should I use? Which, no, that's not like, you're not a slave to that. But when it comes to the big decisions, like David, smart to ask God. So he says, you want me to go up? And he goes, yes, go to Hebron. Hebron was in the was in the tribe of Judah, but it was a really lush area. Most of the land of Judah tended to be more wilderness. It extends all the way down south to what we call the Gaza Strip today, which is where the, the Philistines had their headquarters. But Hebron's up in the hills. It's a nice area, but it's clearly in Judah, one of the nicest neighborhoods in Judah. So David went up and took his wives and they lived there, they dwelt there. We don't know how much time went by, but after they were dwelling there, the men of Judah, some of the leaders obviously, came in verse four, and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. And they told David, saying, the men of Jabesh Gilead were the ones who buried Saul. So the men of Judah came and anointed him. When, back when Saul became king, Samuel had anointed him, but then the people got together to kind of ratify it, and he was again anointed. It's the same way with David. Samuel anointed David, but it would take the people acknowledging what God had done to actually ratify him, and that's kind of what happens here in Judah. They're acknowledging and anointing him, even though that had already been determined ahead of time. There are a lot of people who think that God has anointed them for stuff, but it's, it's a good policy to ask how people respond to that as well. I meet uh, mentally ill people all the time who believe that God has put some great, you know, there, what I hear over and over again is I think I'm one of the two witnesses in, in Revelation during the tribulation, or God is going to use me. He wants to reach the world through me. I am the next great evangelist. And I'm like, okay. You might want to wait until people look at you and go, boy, you're the next great evangelist. Because quite often, when you think you have a vision and nobody else shares it, then maybe you're just nuts. But <laughs> no offense, it's just the way it is. So you always want to look at not just what am I called to, but look for verification from God's people to say, you, know, you may think you're a great teacher, but unless people want to listen to your teachings, something's missing. So we see this in David, that the men of Judah get into it. and But they pointed out, the first thing they did, interestingly enough, is they said the men of Jabesh Gilead were the ones who buried Saul. Jabesh Gilead was an area of Israel up way north, but also on the east side of the Jordan River. Jabesh Gilead kind of kept to themselves for the most part. When we first read about them, by the way, Jabesh Gilead is where Saul's mother was from. So he had kind of a connection. Well, when Saul first became king, right away there were men from Jabesh Gilead who knew that Saul had been anointed as king, and they also knew that they had a relative, somebody from their town, that had birthed him. And so they came down because they were being attacked by the Amorites and, and they wanted some help. They were about to become slaves. And so one of the first things Saul did as king was go up and protect the men in Jabesh Gilead. They never forgot that. And so what happened when Saul and Jonathan and the others were killed um, and the Philistines took their bodies and and disgraced them and hung them on the city walls at Bathshean, then it was the men of Jabesh Gilead who courageously, went and pulled those bodies down and cremated them and buried um, the bones that were left over to honor him. And so there was a special connection there. So the guys in Judah think this is something that might be interesting to David because we've anointed him down here, but we want you to know there are other good people out there. The guys in Jabesh Gilead, I know it's a long ways from Judah, but they're good guys. They loved and respected Saul in a way that the rest of Israel kind of didn't. And so David's first act is he sent messengers to Jabesh Gilead and he told them, you're blessed of the Lord. This is in verse five. Um, for you have shown this kindness to your Lord, to Saul, and have buried him. And now may the Lord show kindness and truth to you. I also will repay you this kindness because you have Done this thing. Now, therefore, let your hands be strengthened, be valiant, for your master Saul is dead, and also the house of Israel has anointed me king over them if you hadn't heard. So, right away, in the same way that Saul's courageous action toward Jabesh Gilead was paid back by his and Jonathan's bones not being disgraced indefinitely, now David makes this connection with Jabesh Gilead as well. And it was a good first step to trying to unite the people of God. Because you have somebody way over there who knows, I appreciate you. I don't see you as an enemy just because you're related to Saul. We're all in this together. So it's kind of a cool way for him to start his reign. But then we see, beginning with verse 8, a a kind of a, a revolution, really the beginning of a civil war. Israel, for most of their history, were fighting a civil war. And it starts here in this chapter. Because the northern tribes, in this case all 11 of them, later on after Solomon, uh, the tribe of Benjamin, which ironically was Saul's tribe, partnered with Judah and the the 10 northern tribes are up here against the two southern tribes Judah and Benjamin, but at this point, it's just Judah against everybody. And Abner, who was the general of Saul, which you got, you wonder where he was when Saul and his kids are getting killed. Where was Abner? I'm sure making big plans or in the officers' club or whatever, but you know, now he's realizing I better do something because I've been like the number two guy, and now my number one guy's gone. I can't like. Make myself king. So, what he did is he found someone that he could elevate as king, and it was a guy named Ishbosheth. And he goes, I'll put him in the position, and that'll make me somebody special, too. And he's kind of a goofus. Ishbosheth was supposedly a, a son of Saul. He's never mentioned before this. He is probably an illegitimate son of Saul who was living in his mother's basement. He's a full-grown adult, but he's not in the military, so it's like, who are you? But it's like, it's okay, man. I found you on, you know, the genealogy website, and you actually have some kind of connection to Saul. So I'm making you king, Abner, the son of Ner, commander of Saul's army, took Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and brought him over to Mahanaim and made him king. Over Gilead, over the Asherites, over Jezreel, over Ephraim, over Benjamin, and over all of Israel. He goes, You're king now. Now, the beginning of a civil war. Because you have a king that God has anointed in in the south, in Judah. And you have a king that the military establishment put into power, ruling over the other tribes. The only thing that can happen from that is civil war. And let me just say, civil war is always the worst kind of war. Civil wars are brutal. People in civil wars become more passionate about it. Like it's one thing if you're over fighting over somebody else's territory for somebody else because you know we have you know, economic interests there or whatever. It's another thing to be fighting against those who are your relatives. And, and you're supposed to be sharing the same land. Not only that, as we will read, when you read about the casualties, the casualties on both sides count. When, when we are in a war against some you know, country off in the middle of nowhere, the only casualties that matter are ours. When we talk about the Vietnam War, as long as that was lasted through decades, we say there were 58,000 casualties. That means Americans. That doesn't count the, certainly with superior weaponry and everything else. And, I, you know, I've been over to Vietnam where, listening to their side of the story, and, you know, they call it the American War. We call it the Vietnam War. But it's a whole different way of looking at things because hundreds and hundreds of thousands of, of Vietnamese and Cambodians and Laotians and, and people from Burma and everything, you know, we're killed in that conflict, but all we care about is our people, right? But in a civil war, the people on both sides are our people. And so it becomes more brutal. It's why the American Civil War, America lost more troops in the American Civil War, probably more than every other war we've fought in put together. Think about that. The, the You know, it, you look at... Well, 58,000 that we lost in a couple of decades in Vietnam, uh, a few when we weren't technically supposed to be there, and then we were there acknowledging it for almost 20 years. Um, 58,000 people. The American Civil War, possibly as many as 800,000 American casualties. And the population was less then than it is now by a long shot. Think about that. Uh, The conservative estimates, about 600,000. Uh, And the generous estimate is more like 800,000. You realize that in the Battle of Gettysburg, it was a weekend, three days total, really about two days. We lost 51,000 people, 58,000 in the entire Vietnam conflict. So civil war is horrible for a whole bunch of different reasons. But what we are seeing here is the beginning of a civil war that would extend ultimately, even though while David established himself on the throne, still they're like, yeah, we don't trust you. Solomon became king, and he's king over all of Israel. Still, the second Solomon died, they couldn't wait to split the country again. They couldn't wait to have the 10 northern tribes going with Jeroboam when Rehoboam inherited the throne down in the south. And Ultimately, that led to the Assyrians conquering the northern tribes. A couple hundred years later, the Babylonians conquering the southern tribes. Civil war is an awful thing. It's something that really should be avoided. Sometimes it can't be avoided, but it certainly should be understood. Man, what you're messing with here right now, Abner, it's not just about your job. It's not just about formality. It's not just about, oh, how do we celebrate the holidays now this is the future of a people are radically at stake here. So he's king, um, and uh, over Ishbosheth was 40 years old when he began to reign over Israel, and he reigned two years. Only the house of Judah followed David, and the time that David was king in Hebron over the house of Judah was seven years and six months. It's not easy to ascertain exactly when these days were. Like how long was it before Abner figured, you know, I better get somebody on the throne? And so he ends up elevating, finding Ishbosheth. And at the same time, David was in Hebron, but how much of that time was when, you know, Ishbosheth was there? It's it's not easy to say. Some people believe that after Ishbosheth Um, died or uh, ran away or whatever, then actually Abner ended up taking the responsibility of the throne, which is what he really wanted anyway, at least for some of that time. But trouble's brewing. And in verse 12, it says, Abner, the son of Ner, by the way, Abner was Saul's cousin. That's how he got his job. And the servants of Ishbosheth went out from Mahaniam to Gibeon, now, Gibeon was in the northern part of Israel, but it wasn't in Judah. It was in their territory. And Joab, the son of Zeruah, who was David's, had been David's military strategist in the wilderness, he was also David's nephew, uh, the son of his um, sister. And Joab is leading the servants of David. And they met up by the pool of Gibeon. So they sat down one on one side of the pool and the other on the other side of the pool. It's like, uh-oh, here is where the Civil War first really breaks out. The seeds were planted when you decide that we have our king and you have your king. You have kind of borders. Now some guys from the south think, I think we'll take a vacation up north. So they get to a pool that is in the territory of, of um, you know, Benjamin, And Abner, the general from Saul's army, says to Joab, the general of David's army, let the young men now arise and compete before us. And Joab said, cool, let's go. They're they're like, we're going to do 12 on 12. Let's just have a battle royale. Now, in those days, a lot of times this is the way they would fight their wars. You get your best five guys, we'll send our best. You, it's what happened with Goliath. We'll take our big guy, you take your big guy, and let's have a fight. That way we can save from too much bloodshed. So we don't know what totally occasioned this, but both generals who... And by the way, in war, the reason why war is so disgusting, one of the reasons why, is that it's always old, lazy, rich guys who are sending the kids in to fight. They're like, yeah, let's let the kids fight. War is fought by kids. Kids are the ones who die in war. The old guys, now they're standing back and watching it for sport. So in this case, they're like, hey, here we are. 12 of your guys, 12 of our guys. Jake Paul's promoting it, and they're like, here we go. It's on. And so each, in verse 16, grasped his opponent by the head and thrust his sword in his opponent's side, so they fell down together. Therefore, that place was called the field of Sharp Swords, which is in Gibeon. <coughs> the 12- 12 on-12 12 ended up with 24 dead kids. And now that's civil war. That's how it works. But it says, then it broke out. There was a battle in the crowd. And it's like a Raiders game. And so there was a very fierce battle that day. And Abner and the men of Israel were beaten before the servants of Saul. So now we see there were three sons of Zeruah, um, which, again, these are David's nephews. One of them, the oldest probably, was Joab. Joab was the military strategist that was David's kind of general. Brilliant strategist. The second one was Abishai, And you might remember him from 1 Samuel. He was like David's personal security, his personal bodyguard, his bouncer. And he was the guy who wanted to kill Saul. And David goes, no, you can't do it. So you've got a military guy, um, uh, a bad bodyguard guy, and then their little brother. (laughs) He's named Azahel. And Azahel was known not as a great fighter, not as a brilliant strategist, but he was fleet of foot as a wild gazelle. It's a good idea not to send your cross-country athletes into war. They get there really fast, but it's kind of like, you know, you get the cross-country team together and let's go chase down the wrestlers. You'll catch them, (laughs) but then what do you do? But he's wanting to prove himself. He's like, everybody talks about my brother, man, I'm fast. I'm going to catch this guy. So he takes off after Abner. And he was just focused and fast. And Abner looked behind him and said, Are you Azel?" in verse 20? He goes, I am. And Abner said to him, Turn aside. Get out of here. Go back. Go ahead and grab one of the dead guys next to you. Take their armor and go tell anybody whatever you want. You want a war story? Fine. But he kept coming. And Abner said again to Azahel, turn aside from following me. Why should I strike you to the ground? How then could I face your brother Joab? This must have hurt. He's like, I can kill you with no problem, but man, then I got to answer to your brother who's really a bad dude. So come on, just back off. And he's like, no, I want to prove something to my brothers that I can do this too. However, he refused to turn aside. So ultimately he caught up to him. Abner struck him in the stomach um, with the blunt end of the spear. Um, and <laughs> the spear came out his back and he fell down there and died on the spot. It was, it, it was that as many as came to the place where Azael fell down and died, stood still. Everyone was like, whoa. Now you think, how could you take the back end of a spear and push it through somebody all the way and it probably went in through by his ribs and... Pop out the other side. Well, their spears were always sharpened on the blunt end so they could stick it into the ground. It wasn't intended as a weapon, but he's just like, come on, man, get out of here, and boom, just nails him, and he dies. Again, this is what happens when you want to be a big shot, but you're not actually prepared. So Joab and Abishai, they, now they're chasing Abner. Now they could, they could handle him. And the sun was going down. They got to the hill of Ammah, which is before Gish, by the road to the wilderness of Gibeon. Now, the children of Benjamin gathered together behind Abner and became a unit and took their stand on top of a hill. Top of a hill is a pretty good place to defend yourself. So they're ready. Now, how many more people are going to have to die just because you know Asahel had to try to prove himself but as they're lined up, ready to do battle, Abner calls out to Joab and says, Hey, shall the sword devour forever? Do you not know that it will be bitter in the latter end? This is going to hurt everyone. How long will it be then until you tell the people to return from pursuing their brethren? Abner wisely goes, Why are we killing each other? This is nuts. You know, why are we doing this? Now, of course, It's not going to make Joab forget that this guy killed his brother. He'll still come after him. But Joab answered, and he goes, as God lives, if you hadn't said something by morning, everybody would have given up pursuing their brethren because you guys would all be dead. So Joab blew a trumpet, and all the people stood still and did not pursue Israel anymore, nor did they fight anymore. Abner and his men took off and went to Uh, Mahanaim. They went and got into a safe place. So civil war temporarily averted. That's a huge, I mean, Abner was a good talker. Joab understood too that even though we can defeat you, we're gonna have a lot more casualties. We don't really need this. This is not a hill we want to die on. And so the ultimate conflict was diverted. But Joab returned from pursuing Abner and when he had gathered all the people together, they were missing of David's servants, 19 men plus Hasahel. So 20 all together. The original 12 plus some others. So those are casualties, but you have to count all the casualties. The servants of David had struck down of Benjamin and Abner's men, their brothers, 360 men who died. All of a sudden, The size of the catastrophe looks like, what were we fighting over? Why were we doing this? Because we had a grudge match next to a pool, and then it ended up being a draw. And so we're just wiping each other out. We are brothers fighting brothers. This is insane. And then they took up Asahel. They went and got his body, buried him in his father's tomb, which was in Bethlehem. And Joab and his men went all night and came back to Hebron by daybreak. So a rough start to a nation, for sure. A lot of lessons, I think, that we can learn from this chapter. Um, One of them is, it's a good idea when you have big decisions to make, to seek the Lord. That's always a good place to start. To give, sometimes, when you ask God for direction... He'll just make you feel like, I don't know, man. I'm I'm not feeling it either way. And that's an answer in and of itself. Okay, then you don't have to make the decision right now. Let's just hold off. But sometimes you'll get a clear answer. I want you to go to Hebron. It's a it's in your territory. See, David, the reason he had more friends in Judah wasn't just because he's from Judah, but because also during his time in the wilderness, When he was fighting against the Philistines, fighting for the Philistines, he was always helping a lot of these remote villages of Judah to survive. And so a lot of these people were like, we like him. So God knew all of that. And he goes, this is a good place for you to go. And here's what I want you to do. But again, listen to God, but wait until they put the anointing on you. Wait until somebody else not yourself, because one of the signs of delusion is to believe that you're a special agent of God. So, okay, you feel like you're a special agent of God. Where's the confirmation? The confirmation will either come from people or good news for you. You don't have to save the entire world. But then as we move forward in this whole thing, the tragic story of Asahel is, you know, don 't get ahead of yourself don't think that you have more power than you actually have there are a lot of casualties that come about in various civil wars because somebody gets so puffed up that they believe they're something that they aren't that somehow the warriors are going to be afraid of your track medals and it doesn't it 's not the way it is it doesn't work that way and so Maybe you'll be a great hero, but you'll be a dead hero because you got too far extended. I think, I mean, in our culture today, there are people who just get a little too big for their britches. They think that they are actually so significant, that they're getting out there, spreading a message, that nobody really cares that much what they think. I mean, I think of company, people who are like, we're leading a boycott of Disney. And everybody's like, "Yeah, they're really messing up Disney." Oh, you know they own ESPN. Oh, well, okay. Well, I'm not going to boycott ESPN. I'll just... <laughs> who do you think you are that you're really going to make Disney change who they are because you think you're that powerful? You're like Asahel if you do that. The same thing goes for like um, Chick Fil A. There, there are you know people of a liberal persuasion who hate the fact that Chick Fil A is friendly to Christians, they close on Sundays, Um, so they boycott Chick-fil-A. Oh, how did that go? Well, Christians actually go, you know what, I haven't been to Chick-fil-A for a while, but I'm going this week. And not only that, it turns out that people care more about getting a really good chicken sandwich, and those waffle fries are to die for with the Chick-fil-A sauce. It's unbelievable. And so you know what, I don't care if you boycott it. You know, maybe the line will get a little shorter for me, but it doesn't. It gets longer and longer. Because people are like Ossahel. They're like delusional that think that somehow they are the ones that are going to make all the difference. I saw this week a pastor that I have a great deal of regard for wrote an open letter to Governor Newsom. And in his letter, and I agreed with everything in his letter, calling him out on abortion and other things and telling him where he's going to head for eternity and all that. I mean, a big, long letter. Open letter to Gavin Newsom. I looked at the letter and I'm like, okay, it's cool, but do you really think Gavin Newsom cares, you 80-year-old Christian pastor? You really think you're going to change the state of California? You really think that somehow somebody like Gavin Newsom is going to go, dang, I never thought about that. No. He looks at that and rolls his eyes. And most of us do. It's like, hey, great, I agree with you, but who do you think you are? You're gonna turn California around? You live in California. It's the way it is. <laughs> now, understand, you are somebody who is a minority in this state. Can you handle that? Rather than go live in some garbage state where it's like everybody agrees with you and tornadoes come in and wipe your house out. and <laughs> And it's like, you know, the weather that we experience for a few weeks, it's like that half the year. All the, okay, fine. Good for you. Then you can be in a majority, but then you don't really care about how anybody votes because everybody's going to vote your way anyhow until the liberals leave California and go move to Texas or Mississippi or wherever, and then all of a sudden you're in the same spot. Here's my point. hell was a guy that thought he was the one who, if he took a stand, it's going to make all the difference. Just a piece of advice. You're not ass of hell. None of you are. So don't feel like you have the pressure to somehow, if you get it together, you're going to fix the world. The only thing that's going to fix this world is Jesus coming back. California is not going to turn against what California is. I'll take the weather, you know. Uh, The people in California will have all of eternity to feel heat, but right now, (laughs) it's fine. And so, to me, we need to look at this, because civil war on any level is more dangerous than we can imagine. Do we really want a culture war? Do we really want to fight, especially fight against things that we can't possibly win at? I don't want to spend my energy doing that, I would rather use the opportunity and be thankful that I'm blessed to live in a state, for instance, where there are a whole lot of people that don't know that God loves them, that Jesus died for them, that they can be forgiven and have eternal life. Everybody in a lot in the states where everybody votes the way I do, they already say, oh yeah, I believe that, I know that. So to me, it's a blessing to be in a minority. And I don't want to fight a culture war, I don't want to fight a political war. I want to fight spiritual warfare where it turns out the enemy is me, is in my head, is my selfishness and arrogance and the the delusion that I have that somehow I am important enough that I'm gonna change the world. No, Jesus is going to return and change the world. Personally, I'm not interested in being in a civil war. Now, there are times when a civil war is necessary and you have to seek the Lord as to, okay, at what point do we get to that point where it's time to battle? And, you know, obviously there are people who jump the gun. There are people who think that, you know, because they have AR-15s, they can go storm the Capitol, and we're going to take over the country. Yeah, you messed with the government. Now you're just in jail. Congratulations. And I can appreciate their sentiments. I I could, in my heart, I could be like, yeah, I'm right there, but... I'm not going to end my effectiveness by going and getting myself thrown in jail and then bragging like I've done something great. You can't, this is the way the government is. You, got, you have to accept it. At the same time, if there's ever an opportunity for legitimate difference to be made, you have to pray about how that can subtly happen. And I would argue that the spread of the gospel will be more effective in overcoming all the nonsense that's going on in our society than all of the, you know, counter-political stuff or who I vote for at my, you know, in my local city council area that somehow that's going to turn it around. No, I don't know if you've noticed, but people who vote are mostly really stupid. And so they'll vote in stupid people. This is the way it is. But that's not our battle. And I understand the more we do that, the more casualties we have that could have been avoided. But the worst thing ever is when the body of Christ is divided in a civil war. And that happens too, where churches hate other churches. Pastors are mad at other pastors. People are like, well, we are of this denomination, and therefore you're the bad guys. And like you're spending all your time making enemies of people who essentially believe what you believe, there are just some minor differences. Christians are more brutal against other Christians than non-Christians will ever be against Christians. And church history is a history of that. When everyone was being persecuted, they hung together. You get to where you're successful. Constantine is the emperor. Now, all of a sudden, Christians start turning on churches. You have the Great Schism in 1000, where the Eastern and Western church split. You have the the Reformation, where reformers turn against the Western church. And everybody's arguing about everything. What does that do for the cause of the Christ, who says, the only way people are going to know that I am believable is if you guys will get along and we don't do it, and it's a foolish and tragic waste. I had, I didn't tell this story for service, but I had a friend who was a youth pastor, and he told me about taking some junior high kids camping, and they had a big tent, and in the middle of the night, it's super dark, you could hear animals outside, and one little kid goes, I have to pee. And he goes, fine, go on out. He goes, I'm too scared. He goes, look, just stand in the doorway of the tent and pee out of the tent, and we'll throw dirt on it in the morning. So the kid's up, you can barely see where he's going. All of a sudden, he starts peeing, but he was accidentally turned around backwards, and he's peeing all over everyone inside the tent. (laughs) To me, that's kind of a perfect analogy for the church. (laughs) We're peeing inside the tent. Our enemies aren't inside the tent. We need to get that straight. Or we fight senseless civil war battles where lots of tragedy happens. We have a race to run. We can't afford to get sidetracked with some of these silly little arguments over things that, in the end, nobody will argue about because we'll all figure it out. Right now, we really, in so many ways, we don't know. But this story reminds us. And as, as we go forward through Second Samuel, we're going to see over and over again the cost of being right, the cost of fighting a civil war, the cost of not understanding who your enemies are. If the children of Israel had gathered and unified sooner, can you imagine what David and Joab and Abner and Abishai and these guys all together going against a depleted and a spread out group of, of, of those who are who are, you know, against them, the Philistines that are, that are trying to destroy them, could have been an amazing future if they fought together. But instead, over and over again, they fought against each other. And if you choose to live your life that way, okay, you know, you can do that, but you end up being counted as a casualty. In the end, you don't... And, as always, all of our wars end up killing our kids, Killing our next generation. That's the cost. That's what happens. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for recording in depth the details of this moment in history where from the beginning there was this division among your people and how many lives that ended up costing your people and how much They forfeited the right to do what they were called to do, which was to reach the other nations with your truth. And instead, they fought against each other and just counted the casualties as they added up. Lord, help us not to live our lives that way. Help us to be those who remember what our calling is, what our agenda is. And that we do everything we can to avoid civil wars. And then if we find ourselves in a civil war, help us to fight valiantly. But help us to know the difference between an essential moment of civil war and piddly little offenses that really don't amount to anything that only weaken the cause of the gospel. Lord, if there's anyone here today or watching online or listening who has never come to the point where they even understand the most essential truth in all of history, that you love them enough to send your son to die for them, that forgiveness can be accomplished because he rose from the dead, and now every one of us can be a part of the same family, that civil war is no longer necessary because of what you've done for us. So, Lord, I pray that if somebody has never come to that point where they received that gift, that today they would want to do exactly that, to get right with you to be forgiven and understand who their partners are and who their enemies are and not get the two confused. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand.